It's good to see you guys. Again, my name is Daniel Rieke. I was here about a month ago, uh, and it was a joy to get to be with you then, and we're really excited to be with you uh, today. I'm here with my wife, Lauren, and four precious daughters, three of which are headed back. One of them will be in here uh, with us uh, today, and I, I'm just excited to get to be here while Pastor Kyle's getting a rest, get to be a part of this Voices series as you guys are getting to hear from uh, guest preachers over this, these last couple weeks. And um, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Isaiah, but it's about halfway through the Bible, uh, and we're going to be looking at a portion of Isaiah 50 uh, this morning as we study uh, the Word. You know, one of the things that I feel like we've all kind of seen over uh, this last few years is how important it is as believers uh, to know how to navigate trials and uncertainty, right? Like it's been an unprecedentedly difficult and strange couple of years, right? Like it's been a weird time. And I would imagine that most of us, if not all of us, have had to face challenges and confusion uh, and a struggle that maybe we never expected to encounter and that was pretty tough to know what to do with. Uh, and so this morning, I want to examine a passage that speaks to how to walk through times of confusion and difficulty and trial from the book of Isaiah. So before we dive into that, I'm going to pray over us and then we will be in Isaiah chapter 50. God, we, we really do mean what we sang, that it, the, the joy of getting to be your kids, to get to be in your presence, to get to worship you, to get to be rescued by the cross of Christ so that we can be adopted into your family, filled with your spirit, given abundant life that starts now and goes forever in heaven. And God, we thank you that no matter what any of us are walking in here this morning with, some of us are, are maybe thriving, some of us are maybe struggling and everything in between, Lord, we thank you that you're, you see us and you know and you care and you love us deeply and you want to move in our hearts and lives. And so God, we pray that as we study your word, that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would transform us through your word, uh, through your spirit, and that you would make us look more like Jesus and have more deep love for him. We pray against the enemy in every way the enemy would want to distract or confuse or, uh, or mess with us this morning as we're trying to focus on your word and on who you are and your character and your goodness. Pray that you would do in each one of us whatever it is that most ministers to our hearts, advances your kingdom and glorifies your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I remember when my kids discovered the power of getting to be the one that held the remote control. It, it created a new opportunity for fussing and fighting and conflict in our house. And it started to feel like trying to convince Gollum to give up the ring to get that remote control out of one of my kids hands once she got her little paws on it right and so they would literally like bring it with them to the bathroom you know they would go get their snack and they, they all would not let go of that remote you know we had multiple remotes break because of that they'd, they'd go upstairs with it and it would tumble back down and now we have no remote uh, to work the tv they all have this innate desire in them to, to be in control. They want to be the one that chooses what show they're going to watch, whether it's going to be Curious George or Spirit or what, what have you. And I think that my kids' posture uh, towards that TV remote is a great illustration of the desire for control that's inside of all of us as fallen human beings. And, and it might play itself out in more subtle ways and in different ways, um, but that desire uh, for control is inside all of us as, as humans. And the question that all of us have eventually got to encounter and confront is, are we trying to cling to that remote control in our lives instead of trusting Jesus to set our course? 
Or are we willing to pull a Carrie Underwood and let Jesus take the wheel with our lives, right? And, and, and particularly when we're walking through these seasons of darkness and trial and challenge. Uh, and so that's what we're going to see tackled in this morning's passage, where we face these seasons of darkness, uncertainty, and pain. Will we trust God through the trials or try to take control, try to fix it in our own strength? Will we scramble and claw and fight to get that TV remote for our life? So let's read Isaiah 50, starting in verse 10. We're going to read 10 and 11, and then we're going to kind of break it down from there. Isaiah 50, starting in verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all of you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, Walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you've kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down and torment. A little quick context. So this is the, a part of the third of four servant songs in the book of Isaiah uh, that are pointing to the Messiah, who is Jesus. And so the voice of the servant referenced in verse 10 is referring to the voice of Jesus. Uh, and so when this passage addresses those who fear the Lord and obey the voice of his servant, uh, it's referring to believers, those that, that uh, revere and worship God uh, and seek to live their lives for him. And that's who this instruction we're, gonna, we're reading today is, is directed towards. So look again at the back half of verse 10. It says, Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. So essentially, Isaiah tells us here, when we're going through dark times that we don't know what to do with, that we don't know how to navigate, trust God to get you through. But I want to dig a little bit deeper into that. I want to go uh, piece by piece of this command. So look at the beginning. Let him who walks in darkness. So in scripture, walking in darkness often points uh, to trials, to uncertainty, to struggles when we're going through difficulty and pain. And we know experientially, as well as from the scriptures, that it's not if we're going to have trials, right? It's when and for how long. And then it says, so let him who walks in darkness and has no light. So not only are we walking through a trial here, but it's a trial that we don't know how to handle. It's, it's dark. We don't have a light. We can't see. It's not a situation that we see a clear path to resolution. We legit don't know how to rightly handle this problem, pain, suffering, difficulty that we're facing. And so when we're in a trial and we have no idea how to navigate it, here's what he tells us to do. Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. So we're instructed to rely on God as opposed to ourselves, which is not the easiest thing in a culture that is independent and self-reliant as ours is, right? And then when scripture uh, refers to trusting or praising the name of the Lord, when you see that phrase all throughout scripture, trust in the name of the Lord, love the name of the Lord, trust, you know, walk with the name of the Lord, it's generally meant to imply all the characteristics of God, all that makes up who he is, so to speak. And so all that he's revealed about himself in his word, his love and his power and his goodness and his kindness and his faithfulness and his perfect wisdom. It's kind of the same concept as like trusting in the, the Bluebell brand, right? Like we know that when we see that golden lid, it's going to be joy and sugary goodness no matter what flavor we got. We trust the name of the Bluebell brand to bring us delicious, life-changing ice cream. 
I'm sorry, guys. I couldn't resist the shout out to Bluebell when I'm in Britain. I know y'all probably get it every single time somebody comes in and you're like, guys, we know Bluebell's here. We really, it's kind of normal for us. Like, I don't know what the fuss is about. The fuss is about, it's awesome, okay? We just love it. So it's kind of like a sneeze that I couldn't hold in. I just had to say it. Love you guys. Love Bluebell. But getting back into verse 10, like, what he's saying is that when all we can see is darkness, God wants us to simply rest in his name, rest in who he is, the fullness of who he is, and trust him to provide the way through. It, it brings to mind Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, where he says, walk by faith, not by sight, uh, to trust God's character even when you don't see what's going on. It doesn't make sense. You don't, you don't know how to process what he's doing in the situation. And, and I don't know about you, but like, we're hearing this and it's like, yeah, that sounds good. Like trust God when you're going through hard times, but like it also, doesn't it kind of feel a little bit unhelpful at the same time? Like it doesn't initially seem to solve the problem at hand, which is we're walking in the dark with no light. Like, why doesn't it say when you're walking in the darkness, don't worry, I'm about to give you a flashlight, right? This waiting on God's solution can, it, it sounds good on paper, but it can seem lacking in practical help when I'm actually in these spots of panic and desperation and things feel like they're falling apart and I don't know what to do. And we do see that his word is called a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. But in these moments of darkness where, you know, we don't know what to do, like I am tempted to do whatever it takes to find a solution, like I, to bring relief to my suffering, to fix my problems, to cr- I'm going to karate chop my little sister if I have to, to get that remote control, right? Like when it's, and that's exactly what our passage is going to predict we're going to do in verse 11. So let's keep reading. So after telling us to trust in the name of the Lord and rely on our God, it says this, behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. So when he says, you who kindle a fire, what he, he's referring to when we try to solve problems in our human wisdom, according to our own strength, where we try to fix things ourselves, we equip ourselves, you notice that it says, with burning torches. In other words, we're not being equipped by God's light. We're trying to create our own light. And he emphatically warns us that's not going to work. Like it's going to lead to suffering. And, and essentially he's saying, like, I know you're going to be tempted to try to take matters into your own hands. You're going to try to fix the situation yourself because waiting on God feels like you're not doing anything. It just feels scary. You don't know, you don't know how to just sit there and wait on him. But kindling your own fire, that's not going to fix it. It's not going to bring the relief that you're seeking. Two years ago, we got four kittens right one week after we moved into a new house that we were going to have to do a lot of renovation because my daughters have me completely wrapped around their fingers. And you can imagine, like, having four kids and four cats is chaotic at any point, right? But having them a week after you move is just, it was just a lot. And so what we did was, we're like, this, this, this isn't working. So we got this, we had this little atrium in our house that was inside, and it had, a, like, a, it was glassed all the way in. And we were like, we're just going to keep the cats in here. They're going to exist here, and it's going to work. And so the problem was keeping them in, that atrium. And so we, we start off with one of those little brown baby gates, you know, the wooden ones that are, you, you pinch your finger every single time you try to, to, to latch it shut. Parents, you know what I'm talking about? So that lasted for about two days, and then the cats learned they could climb it, had to get rid of that. So then we go to Home Depot, get this screen door, literally bought a screen door for inside my house so that we could leave the other door open so they could breathe and shut this little screen door. 
Then the cats destroy the screen. They climb it and start ripping it apart within about a week or so. And then we go to the duct tape route. So we're duct taping the screen door in. Can't do it. Can't keep them out. They're just breaking free. Finally, we get to the point where like, you know what? I'm just shutting the door. Y'all are on your own. I hope you can breathe. Like... and sure enough, they could. So it worked, it worked out in that way. But by every day, we'd kind of let them out during the day. We didn't just keep them in this little tiny box all day long. But we let them out during the day. But at night, it was like, you guys got to stay because they kept destroying everything. I had to get like three or four new phone chargers because they thought they were snakes and they would just destroy them. And so when we would get to the, that point of the night and the cats would realize... I've been here before. Like, I know what y'all are about to do. Y'all are about to try to put me up. And so we'd usually, they would treat it as a life and death situation, the kittens at this point. And so we'd, we'd usually start, we'd get one cat, and we'd start to kind of subtly take them in. The other cats would be like, oh, no. And it would just be like chaos breaks loose. All of our kids are trying, bumping heads, hitting the coffee table. Cats are diving underneath the, the, uh, the couch cushions. And we're just trying to wrangle these cats. And we'd get one or two of them in, shut the door, get the other one, try to bring it in. When we put that one in, the other ones would bolt out. And it was just chaos. Like it was, it was horrible trying uh, to herd cats. And my girls trying to catch the kittens is like us trying to kindle our own fire. We're not ever going to catch those naughty little kitties. And we're not ever going to be able to fix our problems in our own strength. It's like kids trying to herd cats. We just, you just can't do it. And so when we're in that spot, when we're suffering, when we're going through trials, we don't know what to do, we really do just have those two options, that we either trust God or we kindle our own fire. We either trust God or we try to herd cats, right? And obviously when I frame it that way, it's like really obvious what you're supposed to choose, right? Like when it's like, hey, you're going through trials, you don't know what to do, you can either trust God or anything else, we know what the answer is supposed to be, Sunday school answer, right? It's supposed to be trust God. But in reality, it's not as easy as it sounds, is it? Like trials are painful, they're scary, they're confusing, they can be traumatic, and when they're really intense and and we can feel so desperate for relief that we do just about anything to, to relieve that suffering, to get that pressure off of us. Or, or we're so afraid of the negative outcome that we foresee coming straight at us that uh, we'll do anything we can to try to take control and avert the disaster that we think is coming on our life. And that's so often our pattern, isn't it? Like where we, we fear a bad result of some kind. And so we try to take matters into our own hands to prevent that issue from coming to pass. The problem is doing anything out of fear rather than faith is going to lead to pain. If we sow to the flesh, we're going to reap to the flesh, right? That's what Scripture tells us. If we try to solve problems using fleshly human wisdom solutions, we're going to get fleshly results. And fleshly results aren't good. There's, the Scripture says nothing good is in our flesh, in our sinful nature. And so when we let fear drive our actions and we try to control the situation we try to kindle our own fire we we try to equip ourselves with burning torches it's never going to lead to joy it's never going to lead to what we just sang about right because the things of the flesh cannot produce joy they can only produce sorrow that's all the flesh can do and verse 11 is trying to warn us of that when it says behold all you who kindle a fire who equip yourselves with burning torches walk by the light of your fire And by the torches that you've kindled, this you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. Trying to solve our issues in our own strength just doesn't work. But if we're being honest, like 
doesn't it kind of feel a little bit better to just at least try something when you're in that situation rather than kind of feeling like a sitting duck just ready to get you know blown out of the water? I know it can feel that way for me. Like It can be really hard to wait on God in these moments where we don't know what he's going to do. We don't know how he's going to uh, do it, right? Like we don't know how he's going to solve the problem. We don't know if he's going to solve the problem in the way that we would want him to. And he's probably not going to, right? Because his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our, our thoughts. And so to be completely honest with you guys, the reason that I struggle I, in my unhealthy moments, the reason I struggle uh, to trust uh, and wait on God is because deep down I struggle trusting that he really is going to protect me and take care of me. Like I struggle with that. Deep down, I'm afraid, what if he leaves me out to dry? What if this is the time that he doesn't come through and he lets me feel the result of whatever it is I'm, I'm fearing? And because I have gone through painful stuff in the past, like all of us have, I know pain isn't, isn't guaranteed to be free of pain. Like it, I could have more pain in the future. And, and, and then I also know that theologically, suffering is a thing that God uses to grow us and transform us. And so I'm not promised freedom from suffering. I'm promised that I'm going to have suffering because God's going to grow us through that. And when I'm in intense pain and desperate for relief, you know what I don't want to hear? Hey, man, you might need to suffer a little bit longer so that you can grow uh, and be made stronger. Like when it, that's not helpful, right? It doesn't feel helpful to you when you're going through struggle to go, man, I might, this might not end right now. Like it might go even longer because of something else God's doing. And then on top of it, if you're going through that struggle and God feels distant or it feels like he's being silent, it can feel impossible to wait on him. Wait on deliverance from suffering when you're struggling to believe, maybe, does God even care about me right now? Like, why is he letting this linger? Why is this continuing? Maybe some of you guys can relate to feeling like I felt at times. And the question is like, what do we do with that, right? This is where our passage is telling us, but, but what do we do with that feeling that all of us have probably encountered in some way or another? And I don't have an easy answer. You know, like I know the answer isn't to try to fix it in our own strength, Right? Uh, to try to kindle my own fire. I know from this passage, and I know from my own experience, unfortunately, that that leads to torment. It leads to to even more suffering. Trying to take matters into my own hands uh, has led to even more pain than I was already in. But what do I do when I feel like I'm trying to wait on the Lord? I'm trying to trust Him to guide me. I'm trying to uh, uh, trust Him to help me through suffering. And he just straight up seems silent or distant or nothing feels like it's happening or uh, that it's dragging on for so long that I just legit don't know if I can take it much longer. What do we do with that? In Psalm 13, David seemed to be in a pretty similar situation. So I want to read us uh, from Psalm 13 uh, where he says this. He said, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my own soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. So he's, that sounds a lot like walking in darkness and having no light right here, doesn't it? He's in agony. He feels like God is distant. He feels like God has abandoned him. He feels like God is letting the enemy win. I wonder if any of us have felt that way at times. I, to be honest, I've, I've actually been there all week. Uh, you know, when Kyle originally asked me uh, to preach several weeks back, I was a couple months into the interview process of what I thought was going to be uh, a dream job. I've been 
uh, in a kind of a, a transition stage vocationally for a while and have been longing for uh, that to kind of come through. And so this sermon passage, uh, which I've been clinging to throughout uh, my job search, I had hoped was going to be undergirded uh, by this like passage being triumphantly fulfilled in my life by the time I got here to preach with you guys. And then last week, I found out that after three months of interviews and being a finalist for the job, I wasn't chosen. And in the same week, all my other remaining job leads dried up at the same time. And so you know what I absolutely did not want to do today? It was to come, I didn't want to come preach a sermon on trusting God in the darkness and relying on him through suffering. And so I just want to say I'm preaching this to you today as someone who is actively trying to trust these truths myself. Because I'm, I'm not sure how to trust God's character and not kindle my own fire in this situation. Like, I've been confused. I've been angry. I've been upset. I've been overwhelmed. I thought my waiting was about to conclude uh, with a celebratory victory. And instead, it feels like I'm back at square one. And I, I don't know what God's doing in this. And so, as I've wrestled and cried out and tried to make sense of these circumstances, I somewhat begrudgingly, if I'm being honest with you, come back to this morning's passage. I still don't understand why the things are happening the way they are, but I've come to the conclusion. I'm either going to trust God in the darkness when I have no light or I'm not, right? Like that's what it comes down to. I'm either going to believe the word of God is true or I'm not. Like it's, it's like at that point, like I can either let fear drive my thoughts and attitudes and actions and wonder about the what ifs and what's going to happen and, and all of this, or I can trust in the name of the Lord and rely on my God. I can let his word be a lamp to my feet and a light to my path in the darkness. And so even though I literally actively do not feel like doing so, like I'm going to trust the truth of Isaiah 64 that says, no, I have seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. Or first Peter five, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. In Matthew six, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you or Philippians four, God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Or Psalm 29, the Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. At the end of the day, this is a choice that we're all faced with when we reach the end of ourselves, right? Like when, when we face these situations that we just do not know how to handle. Like I don't know what to do. I don't know what you're doing, God. When we're walking in darkness with no light, we either kindle our own fire or we trust the character and nature of God to work all things together for the good of his people who are called according to his purpose. And our passage makes it clear that if we choose the kindling your own fire and doing things in our own strength route, we're promised torment. But if we cling to the Lord through the darkness, if, if we wait on the Lord and trust in him, what can we hope to experience? Well, he gives us a hint in the, the beginning of the next chapter. So I want to read the first eight verses of Isaiah 51 as we kind of move towards uh, the end today. So Isaiah 51, 1 through 8. says, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and the quarry from which you were dug. dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden. Her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving in the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. 
For a law will go out for me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look to the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. It's encouraging, right? In verse 1 and 2, we see Isaiah reminding us that what that what of what God does with impossible seeming situations. He references Abraham and Sarah. And if you're familiar with uh, that story, uh, they, Abraham and Sarah were super old and Sarah had been barren her entire life, uh, well past childbearing years, decades past. And, and, but God had promised Abraham that he was going to have a child who through him was, he was going to become the father of many nations. So in the natural, it seemed that that impossible, that that promise was going to be able to be fulfilled. I'm sure it felt like walking in the darkness with no light for them. And we know from that story that they tried to kindle their own fire and they took, tried to take matters into their own hands, which led to Abraham having a, a child with Hagar, Sarah's maidservant, which led to torment for their family, didn't it? And, and it didn't solve their problem. They still didn't have the promised heir through Abraham and Sarah. But despite that, God had mercy on them. And he fulfilled the promise by giving Abraham and Sarah their son Isaac, through whom eventually Jesus would come through his lineage. And so even there in the situation where they blew it and they did kindle their own fire, they didn't trust God perfectly through that trial, God still gave them mercy and he provided what they needed and what they longed for and what he had promised. And so I think that that can be an encouragement to us when we do struggle to trust God. We do struggle with kindling our own fire when we're walking through things and make a mess out of things. We serve a God who loves to bring beauty from ashes. And this passage reminds us that God takes impossible situations and he miraculously brings rescue uh, and provision to his children by his power so that they know it's by his power and not by their own strength. He takes what the enemy means for evil and uses it for good. Verse 3 of this passage uh, reminds us that God makes wildernesses like Eden. It says like gardens, uh, makes deserts like gardens. He's the God who redeems brokenness and barrenness and makes it beautiful right? He takes our trials and our pain and our hopeless situations and he flips them on their their head and he uses what the enemy means for evil for great good and beauty. And in verse five, he promises that he's going to be the perfect judge and right all wrongs. So all this suffering that we don't know what to make sense with, he promises like, guys, I got this. Like, I'm going to make, I'm going to write this wrong. I'm a perfect judge. And then in verse six to eight, he says, even when it seems like evil's getting the upper hand and this darkness is happening and people are being messed up and no, no one seems to be doing anything about it, it says his salvation is going to get the final word. So no matter how dark the darkness, we know he's promising his rescue is going to come. And and, and, and as I was preparing, and, and even this morning, like, I just wonder how many of us are feeling that tug this morning of hopelessness and despair about something. You know, maybe marriage is in a tough spot right now, or uh, you're feeling spiritually dry, or, or feeling some distance from God, like, like, like he doesn't feel close, or 
you know, maybe you or, or somebody you love is, is really sick and struggling with health issues and it's worn you out physically and emotionally and spiritually or, you know, maybe even someone in, in your life has passed away recently and, and you're trying to grapple with that, you know, or, or you're struggling financially or, or maybe there's some kind of addiction or sin pattern that you just keep fighting and don't feel like you can fully get victory over. In these moments like that where, where things seem so dark where hope can feel almost delusional at times like in the natural like this can't be fixed like i don't know what to do with this there's no way i can save myself and fix this it's in those moments that god often loves to bring rescue uh, where he moves in power and does what literally only he can do um J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings, which is my favorite uh, novel, made up a word to describe moments like this because he's super nerdy, and that's what nerdy guys do is they make up words to describe things like that. But where where seemingly impossible, like or seemingly certain catastrophe, um, suddenly gets flipped on its head in the most dramatic way possible. He called it "you catastrophe," E-U plus the word catastrophe, meaning a good catastrophe. Uh, he defined it as the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears. So essentially, a you catastrophe is when things are at their absolute worst, when all hope seems lost, there literally seems no way that you can be rescued, you're walking in darkness, you have no light, and then suddenly rescue comes. And, and often in a manner you never would have expected or could have predicted. Like in Lord of the Rings, in the Battle of Helm's Deep, in the Two Towers book, they seem, they're, they're, they're stuck in this stronghold. They're getting overrun by Saruman's orc armies, and y'all are judging me really uh, now for the nerdiness of this. But, but y'all remember if y'all saw the movie at least, and I know a lot of y'all saw the movie, right? Like, they're, they're getting beat down. They're like, all right, we're going to go down swinging. So they go out, and they start trying to fight through the courtyard, and then the dawn breaks, and Gandalf crests the hill with thousands of armed men that flood down the hill and wipe out the orcs in a moment. That's a catastrophe. Or like Abraham and Sarah being given a promised child after a lifetime of barrenness and decades past childbearing years. Or in Exodus 14, when the Israelites are trapped at the Red Sea, Pharaoh's armies are bearing down on them, poised to slaughter them, when suddenly we see the catastrophe. God parts the sea, throws them off, the, the Pharaoh's armies off into confusion. They cr- people cross on dry land. Then God lets them get out of their confusion, to, to the armies to chase them into the water, and then he just shuts the water on them. The entire Egyptian army crushed in a moment, right? Or like Isaiah 37, maybe a little bit less known story where King Hezekiah and his people were surrounded uh, by the massive and ruthless Assyrian army facing certain torture and death. It wasn't just death. It was going to be torture and death from the Assyrian armies. And they cry out to God in desperation. The next morning, they wake up to 185,000 dead Assyrian soldiers outside their wall that the angel of the Lord had slaughtered overnight. Or in Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, this famous story, they refuse to worship Nebuchadnezzar's statue. They say, we're going to throw you in the fiery furnace. If you don't, they say, we're not going to do it. They throw them in the furnace, and then they walk out unburned completely uh, from that situation. Or in Matthew 1 and 2, when the people of Israel are languishing, uh, longing, uh, in, broken in their darkness and sin, longing for a rescue or longing for the Messiah when that baby is born in Bethlehem that we celebrate in Christmas. That's catastrophe. When, when things seem hopeless with no way out and then God makes a way. 
It's who he is. And he does it over and over. I just read you like five examples from scripture just off the top of my head, right? Like he does it over and over in scripture and he does it over and over in our lives as his kids. And he says of himself in Isaiah 43, I will make a way in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. That's the God that we serve. It's like what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1 or 2. Yeah, 2 Corinthians 1. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. That's the God we serve. He's the God that brings you catastrophe. He doesn't leave us alone. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't abandon us in our misery, in our despair, in our trials, in our pain, in our brokenness. Uh, he doesn't always rescue us the way we want him to. He doesn't always rescue us exactly when we think he should. Uh, but our God is a rescuing God. And he promises that he's never going to abandon his people. He's never going to forsake us, even in the darkness, even in the valley of the shadow of death. What? He's with us. He's fighting for us. He's got us in his hands. And his timing is perfect. This is the God that we can confidently wait on. This is the God that we can, walk, uh, we can walk in the darkness with no light and resist the temptation to kindle our own fire because we know this is his character. And this is the God that we serve and that we're walking with. That even when we're in suffering and pain, we can trust that he's working all those things out for the good of us, his kids. And we see this most clearly in the gospel itself, don't we? When as humanity, we were so utterly lost in our sin and despair and death and darkness, there was literally no way out. We could not earn our way out. We could not pay our way out. All of us were sinners from birth and from choice and from action and deserved hell for our sin. But in his great love, God didn't leave us there. He sent Jesus into human history on a rescue mission for us. Fully God, fully man, Jesus entered into human history, lived a perfect life that we couldn't live, willingly gave that life on the cross where he paid the penalty for sin uh, for us, for those that would trust in him. And then on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, showing God had accepted that sacrifice on behalf of us. And, and that resurrection was the most glorious of you catastrophes that could ever happen. We thought that the Messiah was dead. Nope, he wasn't. Three days later, he rose from the dead saying, I've conquered it all and you guys can have freedom and forgiveness and mercy and hope and eternity with me just by trusting in what I've disaccomplished on the cross. Not by your own works, not by anything you can do yourself, but just in placing ourselves completely on the mercy and the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can be saved and reconciled to God and live in eternity with him. And that's what we get to celebrate right now as we get to take the Lord's Supper. Uh, So music team, you guys can come on up. We're going to conclude our time this morning celebrating God's rescue of us uh, through taking communion, uh, where we get to break bread in remembrance of Jesus' body broken for us on the cross. Uh, We get to drink of the cup as we remember his blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. Uh, It's a time of great celebration and also great weight as we consider uh, the excitement of the freedom we have in Jesus, but also the great uh, cost that he paid with his life to purchase our rescue uh, from Satan, sin, and death. And so uh, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we'd welcome you to celebrate with us. If you're not yet following Jesus, we're so glad that you're uh, here with us today, and we'd love to talk to you more about him and what it looks like uh, to walk with him. Uh, And so I want to pray for us, and then as we start singing, y'all are welcome to just come forward and uh, take communion.
God, we thank you that you, you really are the God of you catastrophe, where you take what the enemy means for evil, what our fallen world means for evil, what our flesh would do that would lead to suffering, and you turn it on its head, and you make beauty from ashes. And so, God, I pray for each one of us as we've either historically walked through that, if we're currently walking through that, and we know all of us are going to, in the future, deal with something in that vein. God, that you'd give us the strength to trust who you are, trust your character, trust in the name of the Lord, trust in all that you've revealed of who you are in your word, and that we would resist the temptation to take matters into our own hands and try to kindle our own fire, that we would just trust you. And God, I pray that you, even this week, would move in power in any of the situations that are, that are, that are going on in this room, any of the, the families uh, here where there's a struggle, where there has been a waiting on you and, and a longing for you to bring rescue. I pray that they'd even get a first fruits of that uh, this week, God. We pray for each one of us that you would use that suffering to refine us and to strengthen us, but that you'd also use the rescue to make us fall even more in love with you and be even more thankful for you and who you are as we get to see your goodness on display in our lives. And so, God, we ask all of this for your glory and for our good in the powerful name of Jesus.